Welcome to episode 18 of the Rig Podcast. In this episode, Jim McKenna makes his triumphant return to examine the interviews several former Hinton lab chemists did with investigators. We have discovered yet another crazy revelation in the case. Apparently, the testing process used by several chemists in the lab was contaminating not only the samples they were testing, but all drugs within an 18-inch radius. All that and more on episode 18 of Rigged. Enjoy. All right, here we go. So tonight uh, we have Jim McKenna with us as well as Ilias and Chris, and we are going to go over um, the Hinton Lab, uh, the interviews that chemists did with the state, um, not only the uh, OIG, but also the state police in August of 2012, right after Dukin was arrested. So um, as we went over last time, uh, the, the, uh, June breach was supposedly the, the reason the state gave that Dukin was fired. Um, her breach of protocol of taking samples out of the evidence room. And so it says here prior to the June, 2011 incident with Dukin, Salemi had several occasions where he, he, and, uh, this is, this is an interview with Chuck Salemi here, the, the supervisor of the lab. And it says, um, Slemmy had several occasions where he and others were concerned about Dukin's high productivity. As a result of this, Slemmy stated that there was an audit conducted of Annie's work around 2010. They picked a random month and went over all the powder sheets, which are reported sheets, and looked at everything she was supposed to be doing. They wanted to make sure that she was following lab procedures. Slemmy did the audit with Betsy O'Brien. The audit consisted of reviewing the paperwork of every 10th sample from the month. There was no actual retest performed. <laughs> so what's the point? Uh, Salemi believes there was a record. So it was basically a paperwork audit to making sure that she was, her paperwork was being filled out correctly, not testing, retesting any of the samples she was supposedly testing. Salemi believes there was a record of the audit that they did on Dukin and he would try to find it for us. You know, if he had time. So Salemi stated that at the conclusion of the audit, they found nothing wrong with Dukin's casework. So, um, yeah, that, that says a lot, doesn't it? Ilias, you were just asking about uh, what the audit consisted of, and there it is, right? Well, right. I mean, what's, what's odd, and I, I, I assume that this was part of an audit, that, that it's actually something is, gets written down. Um, because I think if, if this takes the word audit to a, um, a, a pretty um, a, a meaningless level that it just simply can be that you looked at something. Because um, I guess I'm technically auditing something right now. Um, you know, I'm sure on my desk there's stuff that I'm, I'm auditing. Uh, <laughs> so where is the, where's the fruit of that? Um, and, and, and why... What prompted, I think this is the one that concerns me, what prompted in uh, 2010 uh, an audit when we sort of hear, well, a lot of this stuff happened in 2011. Well, what happened the year before? And where's that paper trail? Right. Also, uh, interestingly enough, so that's what they told the state police, but when the inspector general's office interviewed a number of chemists they said when Annie Dukin was taken off the bench, uh, whenever a prosecutor called, we had to go back to the lab packet 
and realized uh, a whole bunch of her powder sheets were not filled out at all, which was problematic for all sorts of reasons. Um, that's where the primary chemist is supposed to document all of their tests and they were just gone or not filled out for um, an undefined number of cases. Wow. So, okay. So Salemi also stated that the lab also performed routine monthly quality control audits that did include retesting. How is that possible? Salemi believes Annie had at least one sample every month rechecked. Salemi advised there should be paperwork on these quality control audits. He stated that he would try to find them, blah, blah, blah. He advised the, the retests are done on a sample that is in the safe that has already been analyzed. And he said that they do that uh, to five or six random samples a month, but that the retests were eventually stopped and it is now just a technical review. <laughs> right. so, and again, the, you know, the, it just seems to me that if I were uh, uh, working for the OIG, that I should be paid by the number of times I ask a question that begins with the word why. And I feel like that just uh, uh, here, it seems like there was a phobia of follow-ups with the word why. Right. Uh, why did you stop doing retests? I mean, I can tell you one reason why you stopped doing retests because you got negative or inconsistent, excuse me, results. And that was uncomfortable. Okay, maybe that maybe that's a, a speculative theory. What's the other reason? I mean, like, there's a recurring theme throughout many of the transcripts when they're interviewing higher ups in the lab saying like, oh, we didn't have the budget for it, but they're salaried employees. Like it's the same issue with why they didn't have written protocols and procedures. Um, they could have assigned someone to do this, right? Like it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, this could be quality assurance, you know, like you, you hire quality people who are independent of the lab whose job is to go back and do this because they have no skin in the game. Their skin is to find something wrong or to make sure that the lab is operating properly. So it's a totally different motivation than anyone else in the lab. And that's why you have quality assurance. And, and I should just say that the, another possibility is that there was never any retesting and that that was simply a, a CYA move to say, oh yeah, we used to do that. Um, you know, it's just a coincidence that when you come over to my house, that it's a mess, but I used to keep it nice and tidy. Um, so I think that that's uh, something that probably should have been investigated full bore um, because a lot of this might have been caught if there had been any type of uh, uh, quality assurance. Right. Um, Jim, any thoughts? Two quick points on this. One is the, the good people in the labs weren't always the best relative to the public trust in that they would, you mentioned the fact that they were um, concerned about not having resources for, for doing the work. No, it's, it's like when they were pretending that they couldn't, uh, they were stuck with a backlog and they asked, actually asked Farrakh to slow down and in, in Amherst because they were concerned that she would cut through the, the backlog and they were keeping the lab open in part by reliance upon this backlog they had. Uh, the so other thing is... Hold on, what's, what's that motivation for keeping the backlog, Jim? Because then you can say, we have to keep this lab, lab open. Look at all the work we have yet to do. Uh, and if she does the high-speed work she did in Boston, whether it's fraudulent or not, uh, 
the backlog's gone and they don't have that crutch. So they told her to slow down when she was going high speed when she first got there. The second thing is the, the testing, please. I was going to say we've got slightly different approaches to that particular set of emails because from my end, where we're trying to prove that Farrick was engaged in misconduct at Hinton, uh, an email suggesting that when she went over to Amherst, as bad as that lab was, the supervisors told her she's got to slow down to the extent that they denied her samples is pretty good evidence that she was working too quickly at Hinton. But then, uh, you know, on, on the flip side, uh, there also is the point that's been made uh, that they just wanted to keep that lab open uh, over Amherst, no matter how poorly it was run. So anyway, continue. Just want to interject there. The other thing is in terms of testing, there are a couple of different tests you can run. One, one of which is looking to see whether the samples have been tampered with. If you are doing the testing, which they're describing here, I presume that's not the case. They're just testing it. It's, is this cocaine? All right, you, you, you go to this package, you open it, and is there cocaine? Doesn't tell you whether some has been removed and they put baking powder in place of the cocaine. So it's they're not doing the right testing if all they're doing is saying, well, let's run it again, run it for the mass spectrometer, which I think is what they're up to, because they'll just say whether it has cocaine. It doesn't say whether someone has taken stolen drugs and replaced with wax or something. And that is part of a massive failure to do the right thing in terms of investigation here. Right. So after the June breach, uh, Slemmy told Nasif that Dukin couldn't uh, do sampling anymore. And so Julie, uh, Charles Slemmy, and Betsy O'Brien all spoke about notifications about the, in about the June breach, and they felt the incident didn't affect Dukin's casework. <laughs> That's a contradiction. And then it says, in hindsight, Slemmy stated that he realized that was the wrong decision. They should have notified Quincy PD in the Norfolk uh, DA's office right away. Slemmy feels that Annie Dukin had a mental breakdown. And then Slemmy advised that around the time of the June 2011 incident, possibly in May, Dan Renskowski uh, contacted Slemmy and said that he believed that Dukin had put Dan's initials on samples that were put into the mass spec. Slemmy stated that Dan had sent an email to Slemmy and they later talked about Dan's initials being uh, placed on placed by Dukin on samples put into the mass spec. The initials were on a sheet that goes with the samples for the mass spec that a couple of days later, Nicole Medina advised Salemi that Dukin had forged her initials as well uh, on the mass spec. And Salemi believes he reported the forged initials to Julie Nasa verbally in May 2011, and that uh, there were two accusations of Dukin forging other chemist initials and also about Dukin's high testing numbers. Like all of those are massive, massive red flags. Well, what they could be flagging is what. Uh, in Kesmeric testified to at the, B at the BBO hearing that Dukin would send things to the mass spec and if they came back negative, they rarely would, but if they did, she then would dip it into, into the lab standards and send it again. If you're doing that under different initials, it would be less, I presume, be less easy to catch because it's not a question of you sending the same sample in yourself 
No, someone else says it. Now you're sending it. That right. could have been what was going on there. Right. And why would she do that, though? That's that's the question that no one has really asked. Like they, they say that she did it. She dipped the, the sample in the standard to turn a negative into a positive. But why? Well, we, we know that, and I, I'm not clear on what is what initials are being forged, but from the cases I've worked on, what I've seen is that Annie Dukin as the primary chemist uh, uh, does or doesn't do bench scale testing, doesn't, does or doesn't do uh, uh, an undisclosed uh, 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 and unexplained test on a machine called the standalone GC, uh, which actually takes more time and is inconsistent with rushing. But then it goes to the GCMS department. and But it looks like the primary is the one who fills out all the sheets. And then in, 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 in I believe my case, even uh, writes down the results and, 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 uh, or could write down the results. And I can't tell you which are forged initials and which are real initials, but it would be interesting if the initials of the secondary chemist are forged, it's possible that the secondary chemist never touched the case. And what we know is that Julian Nassif had this brainchild idea after Melendez Diaz of going to a one chemist system. And so I find it very interesting that suddenly after the June breach, everybody comes forward like the, uh, the, the French prefect in, in Casablanca to say they're shocked to discover that their initials have been forged since Melendez Diaz. I mean, how do we know that this was not programmatic and this was a giant... CYA move by everybody in the lab to stick everything, all malfeasance on Annie, even though she was probably following orders. I mean, we don't know. Right. And so uh, Salemi asked or was asked by investigators if he had a conversation with Michael Lawler in regards to Dukin's work. Salemi does not remember Lawler saying to Salemi that anything was wrong with Dukin's work or that anything was fishy. Uh, Salemi told the lab personnel that if they had a formal complaint about Dukin, they should put it in writing. Salemi states that no one provided him with a written complaint. As far as Salemi was concerned, all the talk about Annie Dukin was just talk around the lab. According to Salemi, he... Oh, go ahead. Well, first of all, has anyone seen an email that says anything with the word forged in it? I mean, Renchkowski claims he sent an email. And the emails don't just walk up and disappear. They, they usually are locatable in two different sets of um, email accounts. Uh, so I haven't seen that email. And I'm presuming that um, either that got deleted or it was never sent. Either way, that's an interesting uh, uh, issue to have thoroughly investigated if, if you're uh, in the OIG's office. Right. So uh, moving on to what Salemi... So that was what the Salemi told the state police. This is what Salemi told the OIG. Salemi stated uh, he started at the, at the lab in 1974, blah, 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 and, and officially became a lab supervisor in 2009. And he oversaw the lab uh, from, or actually, he oversaw the lab from 2003 when Kevin McCarthy left until 2006 when he shared the management with Julianne Nasif. Before, uh, okay. So I'll, I'll skip over those. Salemi took uh, one supervisor course and operated with no secretary or administrative support. So he was doing everything on his own and he was also running samples. So I don't think he was doing much supervision at the lab if he was running samples and doing all of his admin work as well. So uh, Salemi said that a lot of people did not want to hear about the problems with the drug lab. 
And there were ongoing battles for funding over the years. And it convinced uh, Salemi that the um, Department of Public Health did not want the drug lab. Uh, so, yeah. And so here is what Salemi said um, about, so uh, Julianne Nasif in, let's see, 2009, in June of 2009, wrote the following email. Um, I, kn- I, know I, I know you have given me th- uh, this number about a thousand times, but how many samples on average can an analyst test in a week? And then um, Salemi said, over the last few years, we, camp- we calculated that a chemist averages about 180 items per month or 45 per week. This is for all types of samples. <laughs> so, I mean, it's crazy because, again, the numbers, uh, if he's just talking, if they're just talking about primary samples, uh, you know, Sonia Farrick and Annie Dukin blew it out of the water in um, March of 2004. They were both over 800 uh, analyses as just the primary chemist. But if you look at um, the total numbers using the data, Sonia Ferrix at 1,500 analyses that particular month. So it's close to 10 times uh, what he's reporting that a chemist should do. But dude, think about that. Think about that. Like he's sending that email in 2009 and he is the supervisor of the lab. And he's seeing those numbers every month. How the F does he not say this is 10 times what I think the average chemist should be doing, what we've calculated the average chemist should be doing. And in 2011, he, you know, in April of 2011, he sent an email uh, to Julie Nasif and CC Betsy O'Brien and was like, hi, Julie, Betsy gave me the chemist report for the month of March. And I am concerned about the numbers that are on the report. He doesn't say I'm concerned about Annie's numbers. He says, I'm concerned about the numbers. And when I when I showed these emails and some of the charts that, by the way, the defense bar never got uh, to prosecutors uh, who have been involved in the drug lab scandal for years, they are outraged, right? Uh, I know Vince Demore is outraged. Uh, I don't know if Jim wants to talk about that, but other uh, ADAs have looked at this stuff and said, we never got this. Uh, that's bullshit. Um, it, you know, we were put into a corner where we were arguing f- for years that these numbers were fine. Meanwhile, uh, there's internal memos inside DPH saying that these numbers are 10 times more than they should be. And then uh, there's uh, independent OIG consultants who are saying this is indicative of fraud. Right. So here's Dukin's numbers in 2011. In January, 894 samples. February, 640. March, 857. April, 702. May, 659. June, 603. And then, so what happened in June? The June breach, right? And she's benched. July, 73 samples. August, four samples. September, four samples. November, two samples. Uh, Dan Rinkowski had seven months above uh, 150 samples. Lisa Glazer had six months in 2011 above 150 samples. Kate Corbett had two. Peter Pirro had four 
Uh, Della Sanders had two. Nicole Medina had two. Like almost the whole lab, almost everyone in the lab had months above 150 samples. Like, how is this possible? How could he even send that email? Well, what's really worrisome to me, and Jim might again want to comment on this, but uh, there are three chemists who routinely had uh, analyses over 700 a month, which is twice as many samples that uh, Charles Salemi thought could be legitimately analyzed in a month. Uh, and those are Sony Farrick, Della Saunders, and uh, Annie Dugan. So the Della Saunders question is still an open one. Right. Right. Did you want to talk I'm, about Della, Jim? I'm not sure whether the gentleman who was supervising uh, got carpal tunnel from playing solitaire or doing something like that on his computer. But my presumption is there wasn't a great deal of supervision going on. And when he ran across numbers after the, the fire had burned down the whole place, it was a bit late. I, I presume that when, as Chris put it, the, the, the numbers were through the roof. At one point, Saunders, Farrakh, and um, Dugan produced 52, 52% of the results in the lab, the three of them. Right. And how do you not recognize some sort of problem right when there are all people there working there yeah there are 10 other people reporting results and these three produce more than half and nobody cares nobody notices it's that that type thing was endemic to what was going on and it doesn't seem to have been caught by anybody and so like one, one more point the commonwealth's response forever from the line ADAs has been, well, the OIG and the AG's office has told us that they were working on easier samples. And so that's the end of the story. It was possible. There's multiple problems with that because if you look in the data, that's not true. They're working on the harder samples, even trafficking samples. But then another point is if you look at other new hires throughout the course of that eight year period, they come nowhere near that level. And, you know, as they said, they were working on easy samples. And so their numbers were somewhat high, but not, you know, 1,500 analyses a month. And Saunders had been there a decade before Dukin got there, at least a decade. So she wouldn't qualify as new hire. Right. So in... In, oh, go ahead. You're, well, well, the other interesting thing, and I mean, that, you know, I, I apologize to do this, but every time I read anything um, that we may, that the OIG was aware of, there's always sort of a fact that just sits there. So in those emails, they say, can we meet, right? There's a problem. Can we meet? Well, did that meeting happen? What, what was the outcome of the meeting? According to the OIG report, um, uh, and I uh, see if I can pull it up. Um, that uh, there was um, that Salemi actually reached out to Nassif and said that Dukin samples were high, supposedly 715 for the month of April. Um, and then there was a meeting on May 2nd, so this is before the June breach, and that supposedly Nassif was going to slow down Annie Dukin by giving her some make work, which is interesting because that's pretty much like the same idea that they came up with later. 
But this was never communicated to, to Annie Duke and, and doesn't appear to be in writing. And if it is in writing, I, I mean, it was never released in a timely fashion. So what, what was going on at the top? I mean, I, we, we can talk about Salemi, um, but according to the OIG report, Salemi said to Nassif, before the June breach, we got a problem with Annie Dukin and she, enough that she said, yeah, let's sideline her with some make work. What, what happened? What came of that? And, and why was there not a thorough investigation of, of, of the failure that happened there? Right. right. So out of the 19 chemists who worked at the Hinton lab in, t- in 2011, when that email went out, 11 had at least one month testing more than Salemi said was the max a chemist could do in a month. Dukin had six times the max in January and about five and six times the max of the amount before she was benched. So I went back because they, as part of the OIG materials, they gave us um, they've been calculating what the chemists uh, had been doing since the early nineties. And in 1993, eight out of 20 had more than the 1800 that, uh, that Salemi said they could do in a year. And um, it, it was the same way, basically half the lab tested more than what Salemi said all throughout the nineties and over half, almost over half the lab in a couple of years. And then um, in 2011, it was 10 out of 17 had more than that. So the majority of the people in the lab since the 90s were testing more than that 150. And Salemi had been there the entire time. Including- well, you got to take Melendez-Diaz into account, but um, you do. Still, some numbers stick out more than others. For sure. And one of those numbers is a chemist with the initials SLL. I could go into her name and whatnot, but she, I, I had emailed you guys and called her the Annie Dukin of the 90s because she tested 8,000 in a year. And, she, and her numbers were always double of what everyone else in the lab was. And then she mysteriously just left. And I'll circle back to her because, uh, Elias, remember the paper that Annie had in between her, um, her bench and someone else's bench? Mm-hmm. That yeah. was put there by this woman, SLL. Sandra Lipschitz. Yes. Excuse your language, but yes, that was it. <laughs> so it wasn't put up by Annie to conceal no. anything it, she might have been doing. Sonia Lipschitz was there the year, left the year Annie got there and worked at that station and maybe trained Annie and showed her the ropes because Sonia Lipschitz was the high performer. And then Annie ironically sat right where she was and kept the paper up. So no one could see what she was doing, just like Sonia Lipschitz had the paper up. So no one could see what she was doing. Right. Crazy. That, that was when I read that, cause that's in one of the chemists uh, interviews, uh, but we'll, we'll get to that. So Sonia, um, these were Sonia's numbers in uh, Sonia Farrakh when she was at the Hinton lab in July of 03, 501, August 484, September 677, October 703, November 512, December uh, of 03, 543, uh, January 540, February 546 of, of um, 04, March of 04875. So again, for the listeners, um, we're looking at a chart of just the primary analyses. This does not take into account the you know 700 or so secondary analyses that uh, Farrakh also performed that month. Right. 
And then in June of 04, it was 723. In July, it was 774. And that's when she left. That's, those numbers are crazy compared to, um, compared to what Hanchett was saying. Like how, and that was in uh, 2003 and 2004. So, um, the, uh, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. One, one thing that might make sense is to put what's going on in the lab in the, in the frame of reference in the context of BZP debacle. And if you have a chemist or several chemists who are completely running amok and you've got people who are very much committed to doing the right thing, someone will say something and make it stick. It won't be a question of making a complaint that doesn't get anywhere. But, but there is that April 2011 email in which by, by this time Farrakh was in, or Farrakh was in Amherst and Dukin was still in Boston in which they coordinated their lab's uh, decisions as to what to do with BZP. This thing, the substance that was not illegal in Massachusetts, illegal federally, but not illegal here. And they decided that their labs would say that this was an illegal Class E substance. It wasn't just the two of them, this is what we'll do. No, this is what the labs will do. And either the other chemists in the lab labs were grotesquely stupid and didn't realize this was not illegal or they knew that it was illegal. I'm sorry, they knew that this was not classified as an illegal substance in Massachusetts, but still were okay with certifying that it was. Right. So that's the culture in which all of this happened. It was, exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up because we're about to get to that, but uh, just let me make this point. That was, they, that, they were just looking to coordinate their lies on the stand. It was a given that they were all going to lie. They knew because the whole point was to convict. That is, that is what hasn't been really brought up or talked about, but everyone in the lab knew what the function of the lab was, and it was to convict people uh, regardless of legality. It was mind-blowing to them to consult a DPH lawyer whether or not BZP was illegal, right? They just sort of decided it for themselves. Yeah. And they knew that it wasn't. They knew it wasn't illegal under the mass general laws. And they all apparently certified that it was. And, and without even using the, the um, serpentine uh, arguments that the state police tried to d- deploy later. Um, but Jim, to your point, what fascinates me about BZP because it is a little bit of a Rosetta Stone in some sense to this whole case, is I can see two chemists uh, emailing each other from one lab to another about BZP. And in that uh, mental image that I have, it would be Chuck Salemi emailing Jim Hanchett. Why was it Annie Dukin emailing Sonia Farah? No one's ever answered that question. Are they deputies for some unknown agenda? And they need to be on the same page for that agenda. We don't know. But it seems interesting to me that they're the ones who took it upon themselves to email each other right. um, as if they're like they're on the same page, regardless of being in different labs. And, and that's an interesting connection besides the fact that they used to work together. That is surprising to me that nobody actually investigated this. And I believe that that BZP email, I might be wrong, was not even mentioned in the OIG initial report. Is that right? I think it's supplementary. 
it didn't show up to the supplementary. Yep. So, wow. um, so we, we know that the, the June breach was about taking samples out of the evidence office without permission, without signing them out, right? And so members of the lab, Michael Lawler, Betsy O'Brien, and Charles Salemi had known that Annie Dukin had been lying. Well, actually, this is, this is another thing. Another thing she was charged with was lying about her master's degree, having a master's degree on the stand. And Michael Lawler, Betsy O'Brien, and Charles Salemi had known that Dukin had been lying about her master's degree on the stand and uh, on her CV for years before she was fired and did nothing about it. And um, bins of things also, for, so for the evidence office, according to the notes of um, the, the OIG investigation, bins of things out of the evidence office for um, a few times a month and no one was concerned about it. So they had been finding that this breach of protocol was happening on a regular basis and literally no one cared until Annie Dukin did it uh, somehow in June of 2011. Now, here is a classy email that I don't think we've ever talked about. So, in Ilias, this is to your point. This is from Charles Salemi to uh, Alan Cam Stevenson uh, in September of 2004. It says, hi, Cam. I had a couple of things to run by you. One, I looked more into the... Uh, I'm going to screw this name up. Boo, can, can you guys read this? Yeah, situation. And I think we may go back and call it, a, and call it an E. It's listed in the DEA, DEA website as a Schedule 3. But after looking at some other things like uh, propoxyprine, w- which is a 3 federally, but an E here, I think we should say that until it's listed in mass, like oxycodone, just just use the reasoning that is controlled federally, but not here. So we call it an E. I was talking with Betsy about how we could keep a record of the chemists returning their samples to the evidence office. Right now, people are just leaving bins with 75 to 100 samples in the evidence office and having Gloria and Shirley sign them in at a later date. I was wondering if we could set up the uh, barcode scanner in your office, have the chemist scan their samples, and then have Gloria or Shirley rescan them to verify. Like, there's so much in this email that it's almost unbelievable. Like, I've never seen this before, and I don't know if Jim shares my sentiment, but I've been working on this stuff for eight years now, and like, Every single month, there's something worse that comes out that DPH or the Hinton Lab itself or the Attorney General's office or the Inspector General's office did. And I like, it's hard to deal with anymore. (laughs) The extent of government misconduct that occurred at this lab just to put people in jail, just to create a money mill where poor people would go through the trial court system and have to pay fines and fees or go to jail because of whatever, like, it just is, I can hardly wrap my mind around it anymore. Chris, you're absolutely right. And it doesn't seem as though we we will ever get to the bottom of this. This podcast is wonderful because it helps, helps make things happen, like make, helps show how bad things got. I think another motivation here besides putting people in, in prison was avoiding work. 
I think that was a big part of what they were doing. Well, the, the 15 cocaine things, we'll test one and say we tested all 15. And yes, there was motivation to put people in prison. And I think there was also motivation just to cut corners so they could take it a little easier. I'm able to produce a vast number of samples and don't really have to work that hard. I think that was part of the mix here. You think yeah, so? it's Laziness? Laziness, yes. We've got an admission from Alan Stevenson, who was the head of both labs for a period of time, saying we had 40,000 plus samples per year. We did not have the budget to do that. No one told us what not to do, right? So, Right. And that, I mean, but that email going all the way back to like early days of early 2000s. Clearly, again, they absolutely knew that drugs were uh, not illegal, but it's not like that was ever even a consideration. They were just figuring out a way to to lie on the stand and make them illegal because that's what the police wanted. And they knew that their job was to do that. I just did. Please. Just to clarify, back then they didn't have to worry about being on the stand. And so we started this series by showing how hard the Commonwealth fought to keep chemists out of the courtroom. This and Commonwealth. This Commonwealth. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, I always say if someone doesn't want to show you something, there might be a reason why. And, and I think that we, we, we're starting to see more and more what some of those reasons were. Sorry, Jim, you were going to say something. Oh, yeah, no, no worries. So I'm going to go into the Michael Lawler uh, state police interview. Michael Lawler was referred to around the lab as the professor. I'm thinking of this as Gilligan's Island, but um, I don't know who the skipper was. But Michael Lawler was the professor because he had a master's degree. And he let everyone know that he had a master's degree. And uh, he was the most seasoned guy there. Kind of had a, what I would say a, a more pompous attitude, uh, but still. Anyways, Michael Lawler advised that Annie Dukin's production numbers were inconsistent with the amount of samples she could test properly. Right there. <laughs> there are monthly reports used as management tools to check on things. There was a lot of overtime being worked, blah, 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 blah. And Lawler stated that an average chemist could do 50 to 150 samples per month. About a year and a half ago, he saw a monthly report and he was staggered by Dukin's numbers. They were over 500. (laughs) They were 900 in one month. Yeah. I mean, maybe he did the right thing and maybe he knew this for a decade and became shocked, shocked. (laughs) <laughs> she was producing numbers this high when she was caught. Yeah, I saw this a year and a half ago. Or was it five years ago? And I said, what exactly? <laughs> I mean, it's... I, I think it's, he reported it. I mean, according to him, he reported it up the chain. But like you said, I mean, that, that could be totally BS and just butt coverage. But I think this guy had pride and I think he was resentful of what Dukin was doing. But I think that Salemi didn't care and Nasif thought that they needed her to get the samples through for the DAs. I think that was... The- like Jim's point is still salient. Like, how long did this go on for before he conducted his own sort of rogue campaign in order to turn whether or not she was committing fraud? So uh, during the interviews, he talks about 
it's actually quite amazing and interesting to read. He conducted his own investigation after he reported her to Salemi and the higher ups. And when they said, we're not doing anything, he would go back and for instance, um, there was a chemical reagent they had to use uh, for specific tests. And he, uh, because he realized she wasn't doing it, he would mark with like, I don't know if it was a little Sharpie or whatever he did. He marked the levels of the liquid and they didn't go down for months. So like this guy was concerned enough to do that. I don't know. It took him years to do that. He finally did it, but uh, it appears that she may have been doing it the entire time. You know, I, I don't know what exactly prompted him to embark on that, you know, uh, crusade to figure out what she was doing. But, uh, you know, there's plenty of evidence, specifically the numbers, to show that it was going on the whole time he was there. And it was, it could have been going on the whole time Dukin was there. And to your, to your point, it was if, if it was going on for years, as you said a moment ago, the whole time Dukin was there. And it was characterized by high numbers. And Farrakh produced more numbers than that. That was in the whole time she was there. Right. So you've got the two newest chemists in 2003, 2004, who are committing massive fraud, massive fraud from the beginning. How does that happen? Right. How does that, how does that happen if they're in, working independently? And how, how does how, it happen in a tiny 20-person lab? Every, like, you know, like the, everyone's all up in everyone's business. How do you not like see it? Well, it seems to me that that at least, I mean, I have a few data points here, uh, but we have some evidence that um, Ju Julianne Nassif knew about the in-house making of secondary standards. Um, nothing from her in writing saying, don't do that. Um, nothing in writing acknowledging that she was aware of this and comfortable with it. Um, we know that BZP was brought to her desk. And again, I don't. Other than that email that that um, doesn't seem to have solved the issue, uh, you don't see her taking any ownership of that issue. Um, and and then similarly with with Dukin's numbers. So I think all all roads lead back to, in my opinion, Julian Nassif. Right. And if someone can understand what she was doing, that might explain why Salemi was sort of throwing his hands up in the air. Why Lawler probably sat there just stewing, um, but yet couldn't really articulate what it was that bothered him uh, when he testified in the Jones trial. Same thing with Peter Pirro. So, you know, all of these things I think are explained if somebody understood what Julianne Nassif was doing. Right. And it would be interesting if that had been the focus of the OIG report. Right. Because it, and not only her, but um, all the other managers, Linda Hahn. And uh, the other one who wasn't fired, what was her name again? Uh, Connolly, Grace, Grace Connolly. Connolly. But the difference is Nassif was there. Right. You know, Linda Hahn and, and Grace Connolly, I don't know where their offices were, but Nassif was there. So Lawler states that Dukin's numbers uh, caused him concern. He, he started watching the number of slides in her discard pile. He would do a discreet peek over a couple of weeks, and it did not look like there were enough slides in her discard pile, but Lawler did not count them. Lawler states that the slides were for the cocaine micro-crystal uh, micro test used when testing for cocaine. Lawler was not sure if Dukin could have had emptied her bucket, blah, blah, blah. Lawler rethought the micro-crystal slide issue and had doubts about what he had felt. So he was questioning himself. There was no absolute proof 
that the that that test uh, were being performed by Dukin on any case. Uh, Lawler does not know of any inconsistencies with her uh, resubmittals, but in December of 2010, Lawler was concerned about Dukin again. He reported his concerns about Dukin's unusually high output to Chuck Salemi and Betsy O'Brien. Salemi advised, and so Salemi, so right there, right there, Salemi, we just went over, Salemi said no, no one, including Michael Lawler, reported Dukin to him. And Lawler's contradicting that to the state police. Was any of that like questioned or investigated? What's crazy is some of this, what you're reading from, is the state police interviews that we've had for a while. Uh, the crazier stuff is the OIG transcripts that we just got this past fall, which contradict a lot of it. But the internal inconsistencies among witness statements uh, that they even gave originally uh, is highly problematic, right? You know, and that's been around since 2012. And then, so he said he reported it to Chuck Salemi and Betsy O'Brien. Salemi advised that uh, they had been aware of things and that Salemi was uncomfortable with Dukin. And he had concerns in regards to her production. Lawler states that Salemi advised that he uh, brought those concerns to NASIF. So there you go, Ilias. Lawler stated that Chuck, uh, that Chuck told him his concerns were uh, minimized because Dukin was taking home paperwork. She had, and she had high energy and she was skipping lunches and breaks. Salemi advised Lawler to take his concern to Julie Nasif if he felt that he had more concerns. But Lawler states that he contacted... Uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you know who else had high energy <coughs> and was skipping lunch and breaks is Sonia Farrick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So Lawler states that he contacted Moses, which is the, um, the, uh, the union for these chemists contacted Moses uh, attorney about reporting Dukin and he had spoke to an attorney in the spring of 2011. Lawler was advised about hearsay and he didn't want to make an accusation about a young woman's career. Lawler, Lawler said that everybody had discomfort with Dukin's monthly numbers. People were worried on a personal level that their supervisors didn't value them because they were not producing numbers as high as Dukin. So clearly she was the all-star and everyone bowed to her because she was doing such high numbers and she knew it. Lawler was also uh, questioned and was uh, concerned whether the lab was being compromised. After the safe breach in June of 2011, Lawler called, called the Moses attorney in regards to what to say if asked on the stand about uh, Dukin by a defense attorney. This was all Lawler was concerned about. He wasn't concerned about people, innocent people potentially going to jail because tests weren't being run. He was concerned about her screwing up the lab and him having to testify in court about it and making the lab look bad in court. He was, oh, go ahead. In some vague sense, I commiserate with him having been a government employee, right? So he goes to his boss, nothing happens. He goes to his boss's boss. Nothing happens. He commit or he, he conducts his own individual private investigation to uncover misconduct. Still nothing happens. So, you know, like, I don't know what else a government employee can do, but. You know, and, uh, and if he's I mean, clearly his knees were being uh, cut from underneath him. But so here's what here's some of the um, 
Here's some of the OIG stuff. Lawler was the oldest in the laboratory. He was a chemist three, and his main function was to analyze cases. He worked on developing or researching new tests for odd drugs like gypsum, weed, a substance that was being abused by use, according to him. Lawler was called the professor and helped um, uh, in publishing a paper. He was a slow worker and a union steward. Um, and then, okay, safety officer. All right, so he was a low producer, and I think that was a cause of friction with them as well. But here, you want to, should I read the, uh, so here is confirming a, a email from, it, it was not dated, but they confirmed that it was uh, March 30th of 2011. Before you get into that, um, the listeners can't see this, but we're looking at your shared screen. Do you see that in the upper right-hand corner that says hot doc and there's yep. a box? Yep. That appears to be every document that the OIG thought was important. So it might be fruitful for someone to file a motion for discovery for all, quote, hot docs or public records requests. Uh that might make some headway in this litigation, but anyway, go on. But where would you, would you file that with the OIG? Who would you file that with? Well, if, if a defendant has a case where this is an issue, um, you would submit, this is an example, this particular page that we're looking at, which is if you, well, you got the DPH bait stamps at the top right-hand or left-hand corner. And then if you scroll down, It'll have the OIG bait stamps number. Uh, you would say, this is an example of a document that the OIG thought was important to its investigation. Um, we want all of it in order to determine whether or not um, Brady material was withheld. Um, I have a client where this is an issue. Um, so you would file either if it was an open case, a Rule 17 motion or a Rule 30C motion, if it's a closed case. Right, Jim? Yep. yep. So, okay, so here's the, the email. A matter has come to my attention for so, from several directions that routine laboratory sampling has evolved into two different approaches. Two major concerns arise from this development. These different approaches will eventually result in contradictory testimony in court. The two approaches are already occasion for reduced morale among the chemists. I'll try to outline the different approaches below. On the one hand, a cluster of chemists clings to the philosophy that, listen to how this guy writes, that each sample should be approached in a cradle-to-grave manner. In this mode, a sample is open, weighed, tested, and resealed as finished with only a, the single exhibit and it, it tests sampling on the bench. The bench is then cleaned and the next exhibit is examined, once again in isolation from any other exhibit. This method reduces the possibility of cross-contamination to zero. Though the most recent, recently arrived mode, sam, uh, through the most recently arrived mode, samples are handled uh, to the point of drawing a test out to a test tube, which is then batched with tubes from other cases, which would be subject to the same test or extraction procedure. At some point, the test is driven through um, the test as a batch. 
The first concern is inconsistency in court testimony. <laughs> That's all this guy cares about. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Think about that. For, for, for the most part, I would expect analysts would represent that single cases are handled from beginning to end as the only entity manipulated on the bench. It would never in proximity to other case samples. This is of particular concern given the study we performed five years ago revealing a level of cocaine detectable by mass spec can drift 18 inches from the bench work area to GC vials stored open on the stills above. Which was never provided to defendants. No, no one ever knew about this. There's contamination all over the lab. And Jamie, can I just, I think you may have just misread, so I want to go back and because this is the most important, I think, uh, phrase. But the second method, which he attributes, by the way, newly arrived. So that gives you a sense of who he's blaming people for that, right? Newly arrived. Yep. Um, Maybe newly arrived with people named Annie and Sonia. Um, And he, it was not just that they, they uh, batch them up, but they said of uh, similar samples. So I think you you skip the word similar. They're, they're batched with tubes from other similar cases. And I think what that means is the cocaines get batched with the cocaines, the heroines get batched with the heroines. And this has been my theory from, from, from day one, that maybe that was to, to build in efficiency. But now, uh, as, as Chris points out, there's an undisclosed but known flaw of this method, which is that if cocaine uh, can migrate, um, uh, uh, 18 inches, and you know that, unless you have a really big desk, you can't batch your samples. Right. Well, you can't batch them in, in at all. And you won't, and just, sorry, and oh, yeah. you won't recognize cross-contamination because you have 10, what you think are 10 cocaines in a row. So of course they're all going to be cocaine. If you had done them in a, in a random sequential order, even, so you have your marijuana, your cocaine, your cat or whatever, well, it, you'll you might actually recognize cross contamination because you shouldn't have cocaine in your marijuana or whatever. Um, so, th- so not only did they batch it up in a way that um, promotes cross contamination, but they did it in a way that makes it difficult to discover cross contamination. And then apparently, Annie Dukin had a solution for if there is a problem uh, where something comes back negative, what do you do? You just dip the sample. So it seems like this is sort of all in plain sight, and yet none of this was really disclosed. But Ilya, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jim. My my only point of difference on that at all, it it was a brilliant analysis with one thing which I've got a a problem with. You've got a different approach that has arrived here, and these are the two newest chemists in the lab. How can they stand up to the professor by themselves? Right. I mean, if, if the approach, I presume, was not something that two junior rookies brought in and said, we're going to do it this way. No, I presume there were other people, perhaps those serving as mentors to these two. Because how else could you have two chemists, brand new chemists, completely running amok from the beginning? Right. It, five right. years in, sure. But this is not five years in. This is right from the beginning. So Lawler's not being helpful when he talks about newly arrived without specifying what he means. Right. He's being passive aggressive. Right. And, um, but Elliot, so guys, if, so 
they they call the samples that come into the lab what? They call them unknowns, right? So if they're all oh, unknowns nice. and you batch unknowns together, like aren't you contaminating potential things that aren't cocaine, that aren't that are just say crushed up nuts or whatever? Like, isn't well, that potentially getting in there too? Yeah, I think what Annie Duke inadvertently re- revealed that she said that there are drug samples and then unknowns, and she. She treats unknowns as like this other category of sort of like question marks. So I think the problem is if you have something that looks like cocaine, you put it with the other cocaines. Well, if it's not cocaine, you have a real problem. Right. Um, They did spend a lot of time on the unknowns, which is an area of interest because that's the, that's the test to my theory. My theory is if you batched up your cocaines and your heroines, you're going to be left with the, you know, the Island of lost toys um, which somebody has to work on. And it looks like that's what one of the things Peter Pirro might have been working on. Um, and, and I've seen some funky uh, uh, lab sheets that suggest that, that multiple primary chemists are contributing to a, a carousel of just off-the-wall things. Well, that needs to be discussed too, because that seems like you're actually spending more time on these weirdo samples, and maybe some of them are not drugs, and maybe your first test was the right test. So uh, you know, again, a lot of unanswered questions, and none of this was really spelled out in any OIG report that I read. A scientist would spend time figuring out what they were. These guys weren't functioning as scientists. No. Uh, so, th- so I'm going to continue on with the email. This led to the routine practice of covering a reservoir of vials. Um, cross cross examination is becoming more suspicious. Uh, suspiciously oriented around the points of following protocol and the drift into different directions in our sampling approach will eventually be revealed through uh, contradicting testimony. This is all this guy cares about. All he cares about is getting fucked on the stand because he's lying. And the majority of of those suspicious defense attorneys. Oh, they're so (laughs) sketchy. The the second concern is one of morale. Uh, The chemists who retain the cradle-to-grave sampling regimen, number one, one is that uh, uh, regardless of stated philosophical approaches, opportunity follows the chemist with the biggest numbers and very often the least original contribution to the lab. Dude, this ego is out of control. Like, dude, original contribution to a drug lab? And then number two, we we feel the lab is compromised by these breaches of protocol, which ultimately will be exposed by either A, audits generated by defense counsel or judges following contradictory testimony, or B, audits which will be uh, conducted in the future by agencies through which we will be pursuing accreditation. And which then, is what happened. And then point number three is potentially innocent people could be Sent to prison. Oh, I'm sorry. I made that up. That That's not in here. He never said that. Remind us of the date of that email. What's that? Remind us of the date of that email. This was... March 30, 2011. Yeah, March so, 30, 2011. So I think, again, what actually happened in this lab happened around this time. And again, you know, if we're to believe that, that the June breach, if we take it at face value. Uh, there was a discovery of something that may have, or not have occurred before many times, but nobody seemed to care, but suddenly they cared. Uh, and suddenly Annie Dukin was persona non grata, except that she was still testing samples, still testifying, and given a plum assignment of writing the protocols that they lied and said existed when they didn't, 
Um, but it seems like something else was going on. There was a shift taking place in the lab and I don't get, I can't figure out what it was, but it looks like um, things were coming to a head. Uh, and I think just, you know, not to gloss, repeat that point, but that number one of Lawler of, for the people who are the cradle to gravers, which he's clearly in, including himself in that group. Right. Right. Um, is he says that we're getting penalized by upper management by the people who with eye popping numbers. Well, he's kind of just telling you what's going on. A lot of people had eye popping numbers. So they're all not doing the cradle to grave. So they're all therefore batching. Therefore they're all risking samples for contamination. I mean, but that's not said, right? That's, he's not saying that, that the, the shift is leading towards widespread contamination. He's just saying kind of hurts morale. Right. And so there's a note here by the investigators uh, on that email. If there was an open conversation about cross-contamination and a disagreement about the way Dukin did her samples, it might lend itself to why Dukin spiked samples and it was to be right. They're, they're looking for motive there, but I think we know that that's bullshit. She was just trying to do things quickly. All right. At least this point, if, if you have a number of chemists in the lab who are engaging in practices which are consistent with cross-contamination, that's now consistent with the idea that everything in the lab should go. Right, right. right. And, and there, there's a study that can be found, I'm sure, by FOIA, uh, if you know, DPH ever answers their emails for FOIA. But um, it, they, you could probably find Michael Lawler's uh, study. Mm. So anyways, so here is... So interestingly enough, um, long after the Kerry hearings, I wish we knew about this earlier, but... Um, there have been studies about how long uh, cocaine molecules stick to services, and it's way longer than three months or so. So uh, in the Amherst uh, instance where Sonia Farrick was breaking uh, open uh, evidence samples with full of cocaine and then smoking it in the evidence room, that's really a problem. But similarly, if uh, Annie Dukin is batching her samples as a whole bunch of uh, case packets open and does not care whether or not one contaminates the other, it's not just a hypothetical problem that you might present to a jury as this might have happened. Uh, you could present a study saying this will happen, you know, undisputably, uh, there will be cocaine on all of these surfaces. And uh, I kid you not. And the pictures that we have from, we have very few pictures, interestingly, but the ones we do have from Amherst and a few from, uh, I mean, from uh, uh, JP and, and, and a few from Amherst suggest that this wasn't the, 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 the cleanest operation uh, ever run. And therefore I have a mental image of there being like a fine film of powder covering every surface. Um, well, we have pictures of that in multiple labs. We also have pictures of the ceiling caved in because of a leak problem and some waste bucket trying to accumulate the wastewater. And also drugs in drawers, like pills in drawers that they never even knew what case it was associated with or cases from the 90s. There were pills all over the place in manila envelopes. Like I, I posted those on Twitter on, the, on this account, on the rig lab account. 
There were there were pills everywhere. There were drugs everywhere. And the fact that they fired her for a breach of protocol when there's drugs in a drawer that no one knows what case they were associated with is an absolute joke. Anyways, so Pete, so here is, do you want me to go over the reagent conversation between Piro and Lawler? But can you, uh, I want to just focus on something. I'm sorry, but Lawler wrote this email, but it's to Lawler. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is with that. I don't know if he drafted it and never sent it. I don't know. Like it, it's it doesn't here. Let's let's go back up to it. I mean, this is whatever. So I also have a, a email exchange between he and the Moses attorney that gets very very salty because the Moses attorney is basically telling him to f off. All right, so. This it doesn't even have a signature line. No, it's just, look, it's, it's, to, it's to no one. It's to him. Yeah. So who's it from, and and why is there no date? But it well, it reads like it's from him, and there's no date. Maybe he was like documenting it. I I have no idea. All right. So later on, he alerts higher ups about this issue. Is the question right? I'm not sure that sending himself emails did any real good. <laughs> Here's another hot doc. Looking for a hot doc baby this evening. Now, hold on. Let's... Uh, Wait, what are they? Okay, yeah, sorry. So here, I'll start. This is from March of tw- uh, 2012, right as Dukin was fired. It's from Peter Pirro to Lawler, Nasif, and Della Saunders. Hi, Mike. After pr- uh, preparing a new lot of Marquise... Reagent, uh, Julie has requested you email all the chemists in the lab to discard their old reagent and replace it with a new lot. If chemists do not sign the reagent book properly, QA will need to take appropriate measures. Peter Pirro. I don't know what appropriate measures are. Is there a guillotine involved? I'm not sure. And that- That's the reagent that they use for marijuana tests, by the way. Okay. So, and then Lawler responds- uh, what, what is that? Six days later? Um, Peter, thank you for the memo. It'll, it alerts me of your concern and that I should update your knowledge of the reason I began auditing my portion of the book. In Jan, in the January prep, I had occasion to speak to a junior chemist. And then, uh, it says as a note, uh, Havis, Havis, question mark, about attending immediately to a change of the Marquise reagent. Apparently, she consulted with Annie Dukin about the necessity of changing the reagent and was reassured that the timely change of material was inconsequential. I began auditing the reagent book in the Marquise section to reinforce the integrity of my uh, preparation and its timely distribution. This guy talks like an encyclopedia. Since... Since receiving your memo, Nicole Medina brought to my attention her concern that she was out of the lab during the interval of the last change. I reassured her that I was that I was alert to her absence and that I was not concerned about the timeliness of her materials. I agree that the email notification of the change is a better documented route uh, then my paper memos placed in individual mailboxes and will go in that direction. I will continue to monitor the dated initialed responses in the book and bring any issues to QA. In the same vein, 
I have a QC issue, which should be considered in the very near future. I would like to present this concern to QAASAP. When can we convene? So Peter Pirro is clearly QA. Uh, he, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, interesting. What's that other issue? Yeah. Um, but so, so the, the, I, I, it sounds like, I mean, this is a small point, but it sounds like they were swapping out the reagent uh, because they needed to, but maybe not telling all the chemists effectively of this, it seems to me. Or if you were out of the office, you wouldn't know, your reagent wouldn't be changed. It sort of it sounds like they're not really good at even doing the things that they know they should be doing. Right. And then uh, Peter Pirro responds that later that day, QC meetings are scheduled on the second Thursday of every month. Last month, we had a few chemists that didn't sign the book. <laughs> They're not even doing their own process. One well, day let me just add, so as far as the marijuana samples and the reagent, we've already discussed they did very little testing on this. And one of the things that they relied upon in order to generate the drug certificate was that we put it in this chemical reagent and it turned a certain color and then we looked at it. So like half of the steps, uh, Michael Lawler is saying, uh, are possibly uh, incorrect. You need to go back and make sure that the reagent uh, is okay, right? So like we've had commentary earlier on the show about how little they did. And he's saying, given what little we do already, this is insufficient because this this stuff has expired or bad, you know? It, exactly. And then so, and then Peter Pirro responded, QC meetings are scheduled on the second Thursday of every month. Last, last month, we had a few chemists that didn't sign the book. One didn't take fresh reagent, so right there, and one possibly forgot to sign the book, but they don't know. The time before that involved the story you told below. Email notification forces personal responsibility so people can't say they didn't know. QA is trying to get everyone to conform to our lab po policy without having to create a new level of supervision, uh, supervision that may inevitably be necessary. And then Michael Waller sent something to everyone uh, right after this. Uh, the suggestion, the suggested change has been acknowledged and will be implemented in the next round of marquee distribution. The new issue I wish to discuss is in an entirely different manner and is of a higher magnitude of concern that will not bear delay of action until April 13th. Mike, <laughs> what the hell was that? Right. Who knows? If a higher than not changing That's it. something you should tell defendants about, yeah. right? Oh, God, no. This is sort of like when the local news tells you that something in your kitchen may kill you more on a, at 11. Um, you know, you know why, why not say what the issue is? Yeah, why are you burying the lead? Uh, so Peter Pirro, um, I think Peter Pirro had an inferiority complex or something, uh, right? It, he was, he, when he talked to the OIG, he said that Betsy O'Brien joked in a disparaging manner about Peter Pirro's contribution to the lab. And this bothered him. <laughs> uh, when the so so he was the, he, the GCMS guy, right? And he, he wanted, to, wanted to develop. What's that? So, Sorry. He was the head of the mass spec unit. So I, I just want to make sure the listeners understand um, there are different machine, machines. There's the gas chromatograph, and there's also the mass spectrometer. Sometimes they can be run in tandem. 
and that was what he was in charge of. However, the chemists also had available to them um, individual gas chromatographs. So sometimes when um, the chemical reagent test was unavailing of whatever the substance was, they would run it through the gas chromatograph. And that is the one that doesn't have electronic uh, data output. So it's a piece of paper and you could rip up that piece of paper or put it in the file. Um, and, uh, and, and Annie Dukin seems to have been a prolific user of that machine um, for reasons that the OIG doesn't document. I think that to be the case, but I do not know if it's true. And it in was, term, oh, go ahead. In terms of the big picture, think about what we've discussed for the last hour. These are things which inspire all sorts of follow-up investigation, or should, and didn't. Absolutely. I mean, how can you not investigate contamination of all of your samples? Right. And, and that's a standard process. That's, that's not, they're, they're not like deviating. One person did it one time. This is someone's standard process that's becoming a process in the lab. And some vague, and the only thing that we ever see of it is some vague reference in a bizarre email that like that that talks about a contamination investigation that literally people who have been investigating this for eight years have never heard of. Right. Like this mm. is crazy, crazy. So and it was Della Sanders and Betsy O'Brien who joked in a disparaging manner about Peter Pirro's contribution to the lab. Um, and so uh, so Peter Pirro had many face-to-face -face meetings with women in the laboratory who thought that he was arbitrary in the way that he made his rules for the operation of the GCMS. Um, and then Nicole Medina, Della Fresca, and Della Saunders occasionally had issues with Peter Pirro. Sounds like there was a, some women and men kind of back and forth. Michael Lawler had one disagreement with Charles Slemmy, and Charles Slemmy had animated discussions with Peter Pirro. Peter Pirro did not treat women unfairly, according to DR. Who's DR? Oh, Dan, Dan Lankowski. That was his, that was his employee. But but, but let's let's not ask any of the women. Yeah, yeah. Right. His employee, who he was buddies with, said that right. you know, MBD. Um, Peter Pirro, when he began to take over the GCMS laboratory, wanted to work predominantly on steroids. Uh, they could be difficult, and he spent quite a bit of time with them, and difficult unknowns. That's what he wanted to do. Eventually, Peter Pirro realized that he could not physically process all the difficult or unknown cases, so he started to give some, like those containing oxycodone uh, or steroids, to other chemists. After Melendez-Diaz, there was a push to train everyone as a confirmatory chemist, so only one chemist would be required to testify in court. There you go, Ilias. Um, there was a short period after Julianne Nasif took charge where she gave Peter Pirro's duties to others. After a time, these duties were returned to him. When Julianne Nasif took over, she wanted the duties of the, the lab split more evenly among the chemists. Peter Pirro and Dukin had gone to each other's weddings. And this is something, this is crazy. With tears, he says, it's really sad what she did. She really hurt a lot of people. I'm really aware of how much people liked her. He was crying. He, he cried about, th there was, there was some, na quote, nasty business in 2000 or 2002 involving Della Saunders and Betsy O'Brien wanting to be promoted. 
Della Saunders was offered the supervisory position of the GCMS uh, laboratory, but declined it as she did not want all the responsibility. There was, uh, there was at the time initiated a hit and review process and everyone got promoted except Peter Prero, who stayed a chemist too for many years. Many women felt Peter Prero unfairly got more opportunities than others. And that's according to Peter Pirro. Peter Pirro's parting and somewhat haunting words to Audrey, haunting because others expressed similar sentiments regarding the closing of the laboratory and the prospect of never working in forensics seized drug laboratory again, or what do we do now? Why can't we go back to forensic work? <laughs> Clearly, these guys just lived in a bubble. Uh, Piero advised that, that uh, so this is, that was what he said to the OIG. This is what he said to, um, this is what he said to the state police. He told the police that Dukin would bring in racks and racks of vials to the mass spec day after day. Piero doesn't believe Dukin could do all those numbers correctly. He also noticed that Dukin was not always at her bench. Piero stated that Dukin also had other responsibilities at the lab, such as making up standards, such as making up standards. Right. Can we play some music on that one? (laughs) Underline, underline, underline. Not that she lied in 2016 to the attorney general's office about that. It's crazy because you can, uh, I sent the assistant attorney general who interviewed her the page where she lied and the evidence showing that she did what she said she wasn't doing. And his response was only thanks, not okay. <laughs> I'm gonna, like, holy uh, crap, she lied to us. Oh right. my God, what's happening? It was a one word email from Tom Caldwell. It just said, thanks. Well, that's better than bite me, right? Well, if you if you use Google, it suggests responses. Sometimes the first one is thanks. The second one is I'm right on. I'll be right on it. <laughs> yeah. so maybe, but again, maybe. this is this is 2012. An interview with the state police. Like, how did he not have access to that when he was asking her? That? Anyways, he he states that she didn't do those. That she didn't make up the standards in a timely fashion, so that duty was taken away from her. Dukin was supposed to review documents for quality control. <laughs> and when they got uh, to Piro, the documents would have mistakes. Solid. Uh, Piro reported all of these concerns to Chuck Salemi. As a result, Chuck did an audit of Dukin's paperwork only. Salemi told Piro that he also had, Ju- had emailed Julianne Nasif about Dukin. Salemi, so this is another person that told Salemi about his concerns about Dukin, and Salemi said no to the state police. No one told him anything about Dukin. Salemi told him that if it wasn't, uh, Salemi, it wasn't Salemi's place to discipline Dukin, and that it was up to Nasif. Uh, Piero advised that disaster struck in the spring of 2011. He stated that it was almost like Dukin wanted to get caught. Uh, Piero advised, well, which is, I mean, that kind of follows. Uh, he, he said that prior to June, the June 2011 incident, Dan Ronkowski reported to Piro that Duke forged his initials on a control sheet. And um, yeah, we've already been over that. Another impropriety Piro discovered involving Duke concerned the falsification of a quality assurance test. The test is known as a quality control daily injector test on the GCMS. Piro 
Piero said that the test is done prior to a run of samples on the GCMS to ensure the instrument is working properly. Uh, Piero discovered that prior to the particular run, Dukin failed to properly inject a QC mixture. Therefore, the results came out as a blank. Piero states that Dukin then made up test numbers that were within acceptable range. Are you shitting me? Piero, Piero has a copy of the GCMS Daily Injector Common check sheet. Piero spoke with Dukin about it. He advised that she didn't say anything when Piero showed her the made-up numbers. This caused Piero to pull, a raw to pull the raw data and saw the numbers were blank on the run that Dukin had done. Piero went to Chuck Salemi about the made-up numbers and the forging of the initials. Piero felt that it was over the top what Dukin was doing. After the incident in the evidence office of June 2011, Nasif told Piero that it didn't really matter about the forgeries and made-up data because Annie Dukin was in enough trouble for what she did in the evidence office in regards to the evidence logbook. Piero advised that he didn't agree and felt it should be looked at in its entirety. And um, he was worried about being asked questions by defense attorneys and didn't want to perjure himself. <laughs> oh my God. Julian Nazi said, don't perjure yourself. At least, at least she gave him that advice. Don't perjure yourself. I like this new already in enough trouble um, exculpatory defense. Right. I wish that right. applied to everybody. And it's an it's a interesting, a telling point in a way because it shows just how concerned these were, these good people were at the lab about the people who are the victims of the of what the of the bad testing was going on right non testing who was so, being sent to jail for years for bullshit testing not a single person ever thought about that except for Annie Dukin right so the forgery and making up data and that's hurting defendants but that's not part of the picture no it, it's oh i'm going to perjure myself on the stand I, I, I can't tell the truth about what's going on in the lab. I'm afraid I can't tell how fucked up our lab is to to defense the nasty defense attorneys. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's sickening. Uh, Peter Piero was surprised that Elizabeth O'Brien gave Annie Dukin access to the uh, to the <laughs> to the database, the Fox Pro database, and Piero was not sure if it was read only privilege. It wasn't. And, and he stated that Dukin started to have trouble with her cocaine and heroin samples being wrong when they went through the mass spec. A few ended up being a cocaine and heroin mix called a speedball. Uh, Piero advised that a chemical... What was that? I said that's a thing, a speedball. Yeah, yeah. Piero advised that a chemist is supposed to run a cocaine and heroin bracketing, bracketing standard on that type of sample. Uh, and then Piero thought that Dukin had higher than average samples uh, that were bracketed as such. And Piero thought that this was allowed, this allowed Dukin to cover both instead of doing the presumpt uh, pres presumptive tests. Uh, Piero thought Dukin had a higher than average amount of samples that she said were cocaine and turned out to be heroin. He stated that higher than average. I heard she was the only one. I guess there's an average. He states that if a chemist is dry labbing and just looking at the samples and not doing the color test, that is where they get the samples wrong. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. It, it sounds like that's a thing, doesn't it? If a, if a chemist is dry labbing, like, oh, hey, you stop dry labbing. Like, you're, you're right. getting samples wrong. Like, am I reading this wrong? And then if, uh, does not have any firsthand knowledge that Dukin was dry labbing. It was just... 
emissions. That, that does fit with the dipping of the negative samples into the mass spectrometer. You guess, you get it wrong. The mass spectrometer says it's wrong. Then you dip it, send it back, and it turns out you were right. Ah, uh, there you go. Um, so th- there's another story about like a, a cocaine falsehood. There's, there's just so many of these things. Piro advised, but here's my favorite. Piro advised that Dukin had relationships with ADAs. So she would pull sample numbers for them. Piro states that Shirley Sprague finally said no, no, no taking samples out of order. Uh, that Shirley Sprague was the evidence officer. And Piro recalls that uh, the ADAs were calling Dukin direct and not the evidence office, as was the proper protocol. And then he goes into, so here's, he alluded to a gender discrimination complaint by some of the female employees at the lab and Michael Lawler. (laughs) It was a discrimination complaint brought by females in the chem lab who felt they weren't being treated fairly by the lab in Salemi. Uh, Piro feels that after the discrimination complaint, Salemi felt that he could not discipline the people that worked for him. And then Piro advised that the mass spec results not agreeing with the custodial chemist's initial finding happened very infrequently. Usually it was due to an administrative error. Ay, 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 ay. Well, that's, that's, the re- that's this conclusion you reach if it turns out that, if you dip, if you're doing the dipping, suddenly right. it turns out that, well, actually, it all matched up. Oh, all right, so Della Saunders. Uh, so Della Saunders state that she never saw anyone dry labbing. She never saw anything out of the ordinary. And she states that she was allowed in the safe to take samples, blah, 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 and that she was not aware uh, if Annie Dukin was trained as a backup for the evidence room. So, yeah, she really didn't say much to the state police. And she stated that she was not aware of any issues involving Dukin until the fall of 2011. Wow. How is that possible? Della Saunders said she knew, I know nothing. Peter Piero had told Della that Dukin was doing, was doing something that wasn't right. Della is not sure what that was and told us that uh, we should ask Peter Piero. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Um, and so this is the write-up on Della from the OIG uh, she's not a member of any professional uh, forensic associations. And she often opened the drug lab at 6.45 a.m. and went through to open the doors, check the equipment, etc. And she received no management training upon becoming a supervisor. Her tasks as supervisor included regular meetings, uh, expressing concerns up and down the chain of command, advising on uh, difficult cases, etc., and she was friendly with Lisa Glazer and Betsy O'Brien, and she was not Peter Piero's confidant, whatever that means. She was not concerned with chemist's competency in the sense that there was nothing anyone did that could not be corrected. <laughs> similarly, to Charles Salemi, uh, similarly, Charles Salemi did not know of chemists with a lot of mistakes. So clearly, she, they were clueless. The state police treated people at the drug lab as criminals. Della Sanders, like uh, Michael Lawler, feels bad for those who lost their jobs and wanted to stay, especially the younger ones who had careers in front of them. Um, And then Della Sanders very passionately notes, police departments are not closed for the misdeeds of police officers. 
Why did they have to close the whole laboratory because of the actions of one chemist? Chemists in the drug lab worked hard. Because Julianne Nasif did not dismiss or put Annie Dukin on leave, the whole laboratory was closed. Because of this, none of the chemists will ever work in a drug laboratory again. They have lost their careers. Um, Dukin stated, uh, Dukin started it, but management perpetuated it. Uh, Julianne Nasif could have acted differently. Della Sanders believes that Julianne Nasif and those above her are responsible for turning a one chemist problem into a scandal which ruined the careers of hardworking chemists who needed help and no one listened. They did the state, they did the state a disservice. Let me just say one thing about Della Saunders. I know Jim has tons to say about her testing volume, but uh, the most alarming thing in the entire OIG file was her admission that she had never actually read all of uh, the sweet drug recommendations, yet we have transcript after transcript after transcript of her saying our lab followed it to the T. You know, so that's a problem from defense counsel perspective. Uh, if a defendant had known she had not actually read the recommendations that she said her lab was following, you can imagine how that would have gone in front of a jury, right? It doesn't take, it, 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 it doesn't take rocket science in order to figure this out. Uh, the jury would have been able to say, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about because she hasn't read the material. You know, they don't have to get into the science. Right. Uh, the numbers, if you want to elaborate, Jim, her numbers were, um, well, she was, before Dukin got there, 2003, she reported more results than anybody in the lab. Remember, Dukin's misfeasance, I'm sorry, malfeasance, was characterized by high numbers. So if you report high numbers, that's consistent with what Dukin's doing, which at least requires investigation. 2003, she's number one. 2004, she's number two behind Dukin. Yes, during the time Farrakh and Dukin worked together, Farrakh produced more numbers, but that was only for like, that didn't match up for the whole year. So Dukin had the most in 2004, Saunders was second. 2005, um, Dukin was number one, and someone named Della Saunders was second. 2006, same thing. 2007, same thing. Eight, nine, same thing. Number two, the whole time through in terms of numbers. And way and, over that 150 per month. Way oh, yeah. oh, yeah. She was second only to Dukin for, what, 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9? And no one looked at what she did. As it, a Please. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and, and that testimony to the state police, I mean, come on. How did she not know that what Dukin was doing? How did she Clear testimony. Oh, your yeah. Police, but yeah, statement. Interview, interview. And what you quoted before, in terms of what she said passionately. Well, if you've been there for however, however many years she'd been, it made us to miss the entirety of the Dukin problem. How do you not bear some responsibility? It would be like a priest in the middle of priest molestation scandal saying. 
yes, there are a bunch of them doing this, but the rest of us weren't, and we didn't know. Well, how didn't you know? No suspicion at all? And how... It's the same type of idea, that yep. she, in that passionate state, which she's quit as being passionate, accepts no responsibility for anything. To Chris's point about the OIG report on Saunders, there is another passage in there which they quote, uh, they say that Saunders was interested in becoming Duke and supervisor. Why? Right. And... Uh, um if you don't have anything more to say. I just want to get Ilias's perspective as a civil attorney. It, let's say some accident happened in that lab and uh, there was a trial where, uh, you know, the, the chemists were saying we were following um, certain protocols for safety. And then it turned out that they not only did the person who was testifying to that not read the protocols, but in fact, they never followed them in the first place. And then aside from that person, there was management that was aware that they never put them in place in the first place, uh, although they were warned about it. Like, what would that result in? Well, uh, I mean, if, if the testimony breaks that uh, people were unaware of the standards, that usually takes away the argument that you were following the standards. Um, and so this happens uh, in, in, in various areas, medical malpractice, premises liability. Um, if you don't know what you're supposed to do, it supports the inference that you didn't do it. Um, and it makes it hard to say you were following it. So I would say that it would be terrible testimony. Um, now, uh, I was curious, though, because Swig Drug, you know, those recommendations, maybe they're uh, uh, thousands of pages and maybe one could be forgiven for not reading it, just like I'm forgiven for not reading the Code of Fe uh, Federal Regulations. But I just looked, and it's 44 pages. Yeah. And this is a woman who was who was moaning about her the loss of her career because of the acts of one person. Well, if you want to be in this industry, don't you read the pertinent guidelines that govern the industry? Right. In in. And he was there since I was born, right? The entire time I have been alive, she didn't read Swig Drug. She could have read two pages a year and and have finished it. But, but dude, I don't know how old you they are, were. All, they were all testifying in court that they followed it. That, that's the big thing to me. They were all saying in front of a jury that they their standards were based on suede drug and, and hardly any of them actually read it or understood what it meant. And even if they did follow it, it's just a guideline and an outline. It's not an actual standard for a lab. That's the other thing. Suede drug isn't a standard. It's a guideline. Right. It says on its face that it's not a standard. Yeah. And so they, they all falsely asserted that they were following this standard, which wasn't even adequate. And the fact that no one said anything about it, and they were, oh, by the way, they were all putting it on their drug certs, especially Annie Dukin was quoting Swig Drug on her drug certs mm. about what they were doing. I have a ton of those drug certs where she's quoting Swig Drug, and I think other chemists were too, as this is what the lab follows. Which is all consistent with the idea that everything that rests, every conviction that rests upon the integrity of the evidence in that lab. And why was there no investigation of widespread perjury? I mean, that's the thing that bothered me in my case, 
uh, Annie Dukin and Daniel Renchkowski testified, um, and based on my review of the um, of, of the criminal uh, trial transcript, I thought that was pretty uh, clear perjury that took place. Um, I haven't reviewed as many transcripts as, as you two gentlemen, um, but it seems to me that if if chemists are programmatically saying we follow swig drug, and indeed Julianne Nassif sent a, a letter. Uh, which ended up becoming a part of the appendix that was um, sent up to the Supreme Court. Um, shouldn't there have been an investigation on why there was widespread perjury? Well, that's interesting because uh, the OIT apparently investigated this issue in connection, as we've said before, uh, with federal grant funding, determined that they lied, determined that they could be charged, and then nothing happened. It's, uh, it's outrageous. Um, so I'm going to pause here. Jim, do you need to go? Do. I okay. do. Thank you so much for having me back on. Yeah. Thank you for Before you go, let me say this. Um, uh, Luke Ryan is widely known as the hero of the drug lab scandal coming out of Amherst uh, because he's such a great trial lawyer. Jim McKenna is equally a hero because of he has created a cause of action uh, that didn't exist before, which uh, the idea, a notion that if the government does not thoroughly investigate a, a non-frivolous claim of egregious government misconduct, uh, that requires at minimum a new trial, at most uh, dismissal with prejudice. That wasn't a thing before Jim got into this. Chris, you're being too kind. That's something that you and I have worked on for years. You're, you're equally a part of that, and we are both following the path that Luke Ryan set. Right. And, and credit to both of you um, for uh, the, not only the hard work, but the, the mastery of a, of a tangled mess. Um, and, and, and your clients have been well served, but so have also... Um, other people uh, that you've never met that are benefiting from uh, hopefully the facts that you've uncovered. A new theory of relief for defendants is a gorgeous thing that does not come along every once in a while. That happens once in a lifetime. So it's, thank you. It's our theory. We've worked on that together for years. You're, you're putting that, it wouldn't exist without that. Gentlemen, I'll start. please keep up the good work. We will. And thank you, Jim. Thank you. Have a good night. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Rig Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.